There's a presumption that the church or churches are normally conservative in how they worship. Once a way of worship gets established, the current members tend to perpetuate it. And these contemporary worship folks, they're constantly pointing out, hey, look, the church is staying stable, but culture is continually changing. And unless we're attentive to continual retranslation, and that's meant both literally in terms of translating the language of worship as well as metaphorically in terms of the musical styles, the dimensions of you know corporate and individual behavior, um, for instance, like is it illegitimate to drink sip coffee while you're in a worship service? Oh, that's a very appropriate conversation. That's a, for those of you who are listening in the future. This is a big chat right now. Uh, John Piper made a comment, and everybody's all up in arms about what I was. Every time I sip coffee in church now, I do wonder to myself, is this a problem? Yeah. Well, it was never a problem until the about the 1970s or 80s, and it wasn't a problem until then because no one dared to do it. <laughs> Boys and girls, podcast listeners of all ages and stages, welcome, bienvenue to episode 57 of the Jolly Thoughts podcast. And my friends, this one I have been looking forward to for a long time. I always appreciate the kind of the, the opportunity to have conversations with all the folks who hop on uh, this particular podcast. But I've heard such good things about Lester Ruth for such a long time, uh, and I was able to just kind of briefly have a conversation with him in person this summer. Um, which only ratified and confirmed all of the great things that people both inside and outside academia have said about him for a long time. So I was just so stoked to be able to have this particular conversation about this one book, which is not thick. It's not like a, it's not an encyclopedia. I mean, it's not a novelette either, but it's a, it's a regular sized book, uh, a history of contemporary praise and worship, which he co-authored with uh, Lim Sui Hong, which we confirm how to say his name properly in the conversation, which was helpful for me. Uh, but this one book for me has just been absolutely mind blowing. And if you spent any time in the church, I mean, and this, you know, this is obviously not everybody, but if you spent any time in the church at all, the Western kind of modern contemporary church over the last 20 years, and you've ever wondered how or why we've arrived at the place that we have with our just kind of worship style. I don't just mean music. I mean, kind of what happens on Sunday mornings the explanatory power of this book, which we hope to try to give you in crystal form in this conversation, is huge. So if you have, uh, again, maybe that's not you and you're like, well, this conversation is not for me. Maybe it's not, but you also might find some things um, just kind of through the rummaging that you find useful and helpful. Without any further ado, I give you my conversation with Dr. Lester Ruth. That's that's some deep, deep paraphernalia there. That is like yeah, some. My doctoral students accuse me of collecting relics. Yeah, exactly. Cultural relics, <laughs> reliquary. <laughs> that's that's wild. Um, so you're in a very, you know, studious background. That's good. I'm in a I'm in a classroom. My, I had do. I'm also at the institution wherein I teach. I have I have an office here, but I'm only here one day a week, and I spend yeah. about one hour a week in that office. 
And uh, so I recorded a podcast there last month and it was very echoey because there's nothing on the, there's nothing on the walls. It's uh, just like, caw, 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 caw. so I just chose an empty classroom and decided to do it here right now. So, okay. Uh, now mine's got lots of stuff in it. Yes. You've, you've uh, accumulated some things there. How long have oh, you been I'm, at, at Duke for? Uh, I've been here 12 years. Okay. 12 and a half years, not in this office, but at Duke. All my all my primary material, contemporary praise and worship's right in front of me, actually. It's in front of you? Oh, yeah. So all my books, and I've got a, a fairly decent set of worship leader magazines. There's my hymnals. Uh, there are all my tapes, CDs, videotapes and stuff. There are the dissertations. Anyway. You got a lot of stuff. I, at one time, I don't know. Did you know Salty, the singing songbook? Do you know that resource? I, and my church was the kind of church who did Salty. Let's put it that way. Um, Salty was just a little bit kind of before my time. Not a lot, but just an easy week, like a, maybe like lit, like five years before my time. Okay. Yeah. I, I, one of my first interviews was of the couple who were behind the Salty, the singing songbook. So he was Salty. He, the actual salt. I have seen videos online since. I have seen salty mm -hmm. at play. Presuming Ernie this is Rettino, the same. Ernie Debbie, Debbie, and Ernie Rettino, They were original Maranatha music singers. Okay. And this is how their music ministry evolved. Um, so I interviewed them in their home, and they still sell all the materials. They took me out to their garage, which serves as their um, warehouse, and they loaded me down with a nearly complete collection. <laughs> How many, when you say complete collection, like how much material did they put out? Seems like I came home with about 10 DVDs or so. Wow. Uh, only, only a few of which I still see up on my shelf there. I think I, I begged my doctoral students to relieve me of it because I had no need for it. But I still have salty songs for little praisers. Right up there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's part of your. It, it, that would be primary. What's that called? Pr that'd be primary material, right? Primary, that'd be primary like pr material. primary mm -hmm. material. You get like that's this is the kind of stuff. I mean, and that's the second question. Like my my first question, not even a question. The first thing we we're talking about is just like what in the world this book is even talking about because it's such a huge scope. But then I I do want to get towards how in the world can one even write a book of this scope? Uh, and you've already given us a bit of a hint by letting us know that you looked at salty the singing song book quite a bit. Now, growing up, I was actually, I, I was Colby, the singing computer for a, a children's oh. musical at my church. I don't know if Colby made its way in, into your primary. Uh, no, I mean, it was, it's not a classic. It, you know, it didn't make it into the canon of kids musicals, but it, it was all right. You know, I, I did a great job, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's pro probably why I'm here today, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so, so Dr. Ruth Lester for short, um, the book that we're going to be mostly talking about, although I'm sure it'll be a meandering conversation, is A History of Contemporary Praise and Worship. Um, and it, you, you had a co-writer with, and I've heard his name pronounced two different ways. And so please clarify for me. And we'll just, we'll just call him Lim anyway. But how do you say the name? Well, his full name is Lim Sui Hong. Lim but um, that's his preferred way of putting it lim is his family name though okay so, so if it, you, you start if with you were to address him directly you'd call him sui hong 
Suihong. So Lim Suihong, but Lim is how it's going to look here because that's his family name. That's his family name. Yeah. yeah. So you, and it, it, some of the earlier book that we did, the first editions of it came out Suihong Lim, which is a more Western way of of sequencing the names. Good. This expl- this explains the confusion. So yes. Lim Suihong and Lester Ruth, A History of Contemporary Praise and Worship. Uh, and so uh, this is an incredibly deep dive. I have been looking forward to this conversation for for months, even though I honestly only finished the book two days ago because I've been going through it so slowly because I have underlined, I would say, 55% of the book, roughly. Oh my goodness. Like I just, every, I know, so I will never be able to resell this one. That's fine. Uh, this, this would be a primary primary <laughs> resource for me. But I mean, like, it's just every page was like, oh yeah, or oh, I hadn't considered, or I remember. And it's just like, it's such a deep dive. And and it, to me, it was so interesting because uh, so few of these um, like primary stories, whatever, were ones that I knew. And so few of the resources are ones that I have directly engaged with. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm 42, grew up in the evangelical church, have been a worship leader for 25 years, uh, haven't read any of these books uh, really, and listened honestly to very few of these artists. And yet- have been so deeply formed by the ideas and could quote many of the downstream kind of like sayings, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, so like, just like the way that it got to me, that was what was just so mind blowing about this conversation, uh, about the book, uh, working through it as a conversation for myself, an internal dialogue. So a history of contemporary praise and worship. And so you kind of, you, the, your controlling metaphor in the book, I would say, is that of two different bodies of water, moving bodies of water, two different streams that kind of evolve into rivers, which eventually converge into what you would kind of say is the giant river uh, of today, which is contemporary praise and worship. But most of the time, for most of the history of the the book, you have them kind of, you describe them in two different tributaries. You have contemporary worship and you have praise and worship. Can Can you just kind of give us a little bit of like, what do you mean by these, I mean, these technical terms and, 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 you know, what are some of the, the fountain fountainheads or, you know, where the, where the waters began to flow? Oh, sure. Well, um, the reason why there are so many terms floating around, if I can extend the metaphor so much in the, in the book itself is because different practitioners tended to use different terms. Um, and, we just found it an easier story to tell if we respected the internal terminology of these two kind of parallel streams or rivers occurring at the same time. Mm-hmm. So praise and worship is the overwhelmingly um, Pentecostal term or slash global term because it's a technical term, not just in English. Um, and here in North America is overwhelmingly the technical term in non-white congregations. Right. Okay. Uh, whereas contemporary worship um, tends to be a very North American term and tends to be a very white congregational sort of term. Okay. Um, so that's part of the reason we're telling the story in terms of two rivers, each with their own name. But as um, Sui Hong and I were doing the research, we really realized, we began to realize that, especially in the early decades, 
And this history starts mid-20th century in earnest, which is about 20, 25 years earlier than most people mm -hmm. place the beginning of it. What we realized is you've got two different um, theologies of worship going on mm -hmm. and two different bodies of literature being produced and two different um, sets of teaching and even two different sorts of practices going on. Um, the main concern was different in the two rivers. And so that's part of the reason why we tried to maintain the integrity as we tell the story of telling the history of praise and worship first, and then the history of contemporary worship. Now, I can get into what the differences are, but I don't want to just keep running on with my, no, my sentences here. It's funny, we use the word story a number of times. The first time I picked up a book like this, and, and the person described in the preface that they're going to be telling a story, I was, you know, I grabbed my popcorn and I was getting ready for what was going to be, you know, just like a, a, a nice little, you know, maybe there'd be some elves, uh, maybe there'd be some bombs. I don't know. Something that, but this is not a story like you would think of in terms of like a fictional story, but oh, it's no, a, no, no. but it's a, or even in some respects, maybe not even what you'd think of as a non-fictional story, even though it is non-fiction, but it's a, it's a, it's a narrative that's crafted specifically that gives you a storyline. So it's like a, it, it helps you kind of yep. see and understand Dis, maybe what could be in some respects connected or understood as disconnected events, how they are connected via a certain plot line that's kind of like moving their way through. Um, and so that's, that's, that's the impression that I have in terms of like, so just so people don't think that they're going to be picking up this book and, and, you know, reading exclusively about uh, like characters and event. There are characters, there are events, but the overall story is actually one that you guys, I would say partially you uncover, um, yep. but then you also clarify. So it's not, you're, you're not creating it out of whole cloth, but you're also, I would, I would interpret it as a creative act in some respects because you're, you're helping create what would be an, maybe a story that wouldn't be understood. And also um, how you can say this is that there are rival stories. Like there are other stories that people have told or have tried to tell mm -hmm. in some respects, although you claim, and I've seen many people back up that this is probably the most detailed version of a story like this. Maybe that's made its way into print so far. Yeah. I, I um, Let me give you some of the background to the book, and mm. I think that will help explain the book. So Sui Hong and I were rooming together at a conference in Toronto, oh, about the year 2010. And we were just sitting around one night thinking about, you know, what are we going to do the next stage of our career? What What do we think hasn't been done? What would be interesting to do? And it dawned on us that no one had really tried to tell the history of what we might call band-based worship that had arisen at the end of the 20th century, apart from really focusing in on the music. Mm -hmm. And we felt like, well, the musical story or the musical aspect, there's still work to be done there, but that's not the only thing that's done. And and um, I mean, for instance, one of the most striking things for me is just the rise of informality in worship, hmm. um, informal language, informal dress. I mean, it's just a huge overhaul from the 1960s forward, and no one was really trying to address that. Um, so we made a pledge to each other uh, sitting in that motel room in Toronto 
in 2010 that we were going to do two books together. We were going to do a short one, and we were going to do a longer one, and we weren't just going to tell, rehash the musical plot line, I might call it, mm. through the facts and figures. And so that launched us on about a part of 10 years of research. Um, and we just started gathering as much relevant material as we could, and one one book would lead to another. We also began interviewing um, virtually anyone who would sit still in front of us. Um, and, and literally, like I remember, I took one trip down to South Carolina, which is the state immediately below where I live here, um, to the annual Methodist conference there. And I have some friends down there, and I had just asked them, just tell me who the early adopters of contemporary worship were in this area. And I set up interviews with those people. I had no idea what it was that they were going to tell me, but I asked them, you know, what attracted you to this? Where did you learn about it? Where did you find the resources for it? And bit by bit, by accumulating print material, uh, interviews, and Swing Hong and I eventually did over 180 of them, um, through periodical literature, through unpublished materials that people would supply us, um, through videotapes. Um, we finally found, we felt like we had enough information to tell a fuller account of where this band-based uh, worship came from. And, and once we started organizing it, that's where the idea of these two rivers came from, hmm. because we, we just it was clear there was there was one world over here, well, I'm pointing to my right side, and another world over here to my left side, mm -hmm. and that they're running in parallel tracks. And there's there's a little bit of a floodplain between the two, but particularly early on, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even up into the 80s, there's not necessarily a lot of overlap or, or cross-migration between the two. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So it was a forensic journey. Like you were, you were, you did, you forensic guys journey. did the work. You did the yeah, work. And, and, and that's my training. Um, I had a professor once tell me, Paul Bradshaw, he's an expert in um, uh, liturgy in the patristic period, the first five centuries. He said, Lester, it's always easy to prove your point when you ignore all the evidence to the contrary. <laughs> um <laughs> And so between him and my dissertation director, James White, who was a, a very prominent historian of Protestant worship, um, and Sui Hong was trained, uh, not by Paul Bradshaw, but by uh, James White, um, you just got to gather the material. I have a, a little slogan. I, I teach my own doctoral students that bibliography is... 90% of the work and methodology is the other half. Um, <laughs> that you got to have the raw material to work with. Yeah. And so we did not intentionally exclude this or that or not look at these people or not try to gather this sort of material. And it was painstaking at first. Um, but like in a, a train leaving the station, a station, Bit by bit, as you start to build up momentum, uh, you know how to discriminate. So, you know, by the end of the process, we weren't doing random interviews anymore. We were doing very targeted yeah. Yeah. interviews. Very good. Um, 
So it sounds like the idea was birthed in Canada, which is wonderful. I was birthed in Canada. Birthed too, in so Canada. And amazingly, uh, much of the story in the book is Canadian. Yeah, I was I was quite pleased. There's a lot of Canadian reference points. Uh, and so just so we clarify, the, the shorter book that you you uh, also committed, covenanted uh, to write is Lovin' on Jesus. And was that released in, was it 2016? 2017. 2017. Okay. So that's been out for mm-hmm. in, in the world, the wild for a, a while now. Yeah, that's a, that's a short paperback. It's a concise history of contemporary worship. You can, you can even tell the evolution. If you compare the two books, if we had to sub- title that first book again we would go with contemporary praise and worship right but uh sui hong and i are both methodists so our predilection is for the mainline term and we didn't realize totally at that point just how limited that term was right and so actually you make up for it because it's the back it's the center portion of this this current book and you you start with what i i think it seems like an even deeper dive into the world of of praise and worship, which you trace back to mm-hmm. Saskatchewan. Is this correct? Is it, am, I, am I saying is it is that where it starts? What uh, um, British Columbia? Okay, British Columbia. Okay, this retired businessman from Ontario, the province of Ontario. He right. was had lived in Toronto, but had retired north in Toronto. And if I'm mispronouncing that for all of the Canadian hearers. My apologies. Um, <laughs> you're all um, good. You're all good. So um, he's retired, and he's invited to come out and speak in a little church in British Columbia, a little series of meetings there in British Pentecostal churches. And um, long story short, he locks in on Psalm 22.3, that God is the Holy One who inhabits the praises of Israel. He uh, attaches that to a few other scripture verses and comes up with this kind of theology of worship that by um, intention, Christian congregations can begin to praise God in an extensive manner, and God will honor that by coming and being present. Um, And uh, he makes the, he eventually becomes a pastor just soon after that. It's 1946. Makes that the centerpiece of his ministry. 1948, he gets connected with a big revival that breaks out in Saskatchewan. Okay. And that provides the uh, not only um, continental but global platform for the dissemination of that theology. And so it's in New Zealand, Australia, Hong Kong. Europe, Africa, with um, Central and South America within just a few years. And this is the latter rain movement? It's the latter rain, yes. Yeah. And so this is a Pentecostal movement. Um, and so uh, just to maybe get some clarity on this, because I find this, I mean, this is so, so fascinating because like, so a friend of mine just shared a, another book with me. It's a, a recent book that was published in, I think it was 2016. Um, and so I, I was in the US last week and so I, I audibled, I, I audio booked this the whole time while I was driving. Um, and so in this, in this book, which is a, you know, it's five years, I guess it's more than five years old now, but it's not that old. No. Um, and so in this book, um, the where the key verses is Psalm twenty two three the God inhabits the praise of His people. Um, it talks about um, 
the seven Hebrew words for praise makes a pretty yep. prominent thing in there. Uh, um, teaching that developed in the 70s, yeah. Right. And there's a significant, like I would say that really probably the controlling metaphor for the entire book is the the Moses tabernacle. They actually don't, they they acknowledge the Davidic tabernacle, but they don't, they don't say that there's any functional difference between the two. So they just kind of like extrapolate and, and use that as a way to teach through the various kinds of thing of praise. Yeah. So again, an, another dominant derived teaching that arises in the 1970s. Right. So, and, but, and then all, but it all kind of comes back towards this idea, which is, is acknowledged, but not even not taught deeply. It's merely just kind of like take it for granted that, uh, that he gives two different translations of the of Psalm 22, three, he gives a contemporary one and then a KJV one so that you can see the words enthroned and inhabitists. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is, but it's, it would be, it's mind blowing to think that nobody, or at least as far as we can tell before 1945, this is not the way that people approached this particular verse historically. No. And the, if you go back now that you've read the whole book, go look at the footnotes because there's, there's a, oh, I, I read them too. Yeah, don't worry. Oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> we worked hard because it, right. remember what my professor said, it's easy to prove your point if you ignore right. all the evidence to the contrary. Sure. So we went looking for earlier Mm-hmm. references and uses of the Psalm 22, 3. Mm-hmm. And the best that we could find were a couple of kind of passing sort of references to it in a four-square gospel context. Mm-hmm. Um, Amy Simple McPherson signs it once in something she wrote in the 1920s, um, okay. founder of the four-square gospel church in her Angelus Temple there, there in Los Angeles. And then Jack Hayford says he used to hear it when he was a kid growing up in the Foursquare Church. But we looked and looked and looked. It doesn't appear that anyone made that the cornerstone of a developed theology until this Canadian pastor in 1946, uh, Reg Lazelle. Right. So there's the theology of it, which is like, you guys do your best to lay out two different theologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the praise and worship theology and then the contemporary worship theology. And we'll, we'll get to that one. And both of them have a kind of a, a decoder ring verse, like the one, the yep. one, the one verse to rule them all, the one verse to yeah. bind them. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it is. I mean, let me tell you one backstory here, if you don't mind, Mark. Sure. So, uh, oh, probably seven, eight, nine years ago, no, not quite the seven or eight, seven or eight years ago. Um, when the, the the centrality, the importance of that Psalm twenty two three verse was really beginning to imprint itself on my mind, I had a couple of uh, Pentecostal students in my intro to worship class. They were both Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, particular Pentecostal denomination here in the U.S. And I asked one of them. I said, "Have you ever heard this before? That God inhabits the praises of His people." He says, heard it. I've heard it every single Sunday of my entire life. Right. And that's when I knew, okay, bingo, we're on to something here. And once we got our antenna up looking Mm -hmm. for explicit referencing of that or kind of implicit, subtle allusions to it, it was everywhere. Right. Everywhere. We even went on CCLI Song Select and started looking for songs. And they just they just started popping out of CCLI Song Select. Right. Once we knew what to look for. 
so I don't want to lose the thread because I mean, so we see this, this river that you know, begins back then, but I mean, if this is an okay place to ask this question, sure. I just want to try to understand. So, you know, not every listener to this podcast will necessarily even have an understanding of what uh, charismatic worship is like. Maybe they have no experience with the Pentecostal church. Probably a lot of people will have um, a passing understanding of it. Uh, one of the reasons that, you know, to skip, skip around in the narrative a little bit, when you get to the end where essentially both of these rivers become a, a a raging flood that have kind of taken over the church. And you know, this is the case because when I was growing up, um, uh, do you know, Mr. Bean, do you, do you know the kid, Rowan Atkinson? He was, a, he's a British actor. Oh yes, yes, yeah, yes, 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 Mr. Bean, he does a, just kind of does a pantomime thing. It was in Canada, you know, we're a little bit more connected to England. And so we would watch Mr. Bean videos growing up. So when I was a, when I was a kid. Yeah, so you're uh, the country with royalty on your currency, not not the U.S. So Right, exactly. We're loyalists of, of some, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're bad loyalists, but we're loyalists nonetheless. Uh, so so growing up, uh, he when he went to church, he went to a church that was very stodgy, like on TV. Like it was very yeah, much, yeah. there was a scene where he, you know, was trying to sing along in church and was like, hallelujah, hallelujah. Yeah. It was the only part that he knew was that. Uh, and so like, that was the picture of like church on TV when I was growing up. Now I'm not advocating that you watch this particular show, but there's a show on Netflix right now called beef. And this was released just last year. And so in this, it's a, uh, set in America, but it's set in 2022 America and, uh, it's some Korean Americans. And when they go to church, the, the songs that they sing, they sing an elevation worship song and they sing, I can't remember what it is, uh, but they just, it's, it's very much just like it's band based. It's very charismatic. Mm-hmm. Like that's the picture. And like, they didn't need, they didn't feel the need to explain that Mr. Bean was going to church when I was a kid on the show. Like that was just what church was, nor did they feel the need to explain that this is what church was when they went there on this particular TV show. That was just a general, like it has sex violence and rock and roll in the show. Like it's not a, it's not a Christian show in any way, shape or form, but this is their stereotypical version of church now is a contemporary praise and worship church. So like it's the reason that it's, it's so large is that it's, it's worth understanding that. So back to the river. Okay. The first, the first one, the praise and worship river that's starting to form. If you have yeah. some familiarity with kind of the charismatic worship or maybe what a Pentecostal worship service would look like, I think that most of us would just say, well, praise and worship music. So kind of the start fast and slow, start happy, kind of end intense, um, have some sort of cathartic experience or like an experience of the Holy Spirit, whether you think about it sociologically or spiritually, it doesn't really matter, but like the flow. I have a hard time understanding that if there's been Pentecostal churches for 40 to 45 years prior to this time, what did a worship flow look like before that period of time? Ah, that, that's the million dollar question. And if there are any listeners who would like <laughs> to pursue doctoral studies, I'm hungering for someone willing to work on the history of Pentecostal worship from early to mid 20th century. But the best. I can tell is that it, it would have been kind of like a very intense form of Baptist worship or evangelical worship generally okay. with uh, a, oftentimes a ministry time at the end. Okay. Um, in fact, I had... One of the interviews I did um, 
long time, multi-generational Assemblies of God music minister, Steve Pfeiffer is his name. And he told me about when his pastor, he was a church musician, his pastor asked him to begin to lead praise and worship. And Steve could not understand what it was that he was asking because in the service itself, he was used to playing for hymns um, and they would have a choir anthem, um, et cetera, et cetera, until the very end. And then Steve had a responsibility during the ministering prayer time where they were inviting people up to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, and to be baptized, Holy Ghost, speak in tongues, that all of that presumed a musical underlay. Okay. Extended so Steve knew how to circle a fifth. I think that's the technical musical term. He knew how to transition in terms of keys and that sort of thing. And he said, "Oh, I understand now. My pastor wants me to move that from the end of the service to the beginning." Oh, fascinating. Okay. So that the first thirty to forty minutes is an extended musical time, not the last thirty to forty minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, okay. and so that's kind of a hint that they were expecting the first part of the services to be kind of standard if you're familiar with free church or Baptist right. worship, but just with a little bit more intensity, a little bit more shouting, the ability to dance perhaps or move about. Mm -hmm. But even that would have been lost in Pentecostal congregations that were getting social standing and money and education. So usually there's Usually as the people get money and the clergy get educated, the worship gets more passive. Oh, no. You didn't say that on record, did you? You know, I, that's not a universal rule, but in the last several hundred years, that tends to be the case. Yeah, okay. That's, because you get, yeah, it just seems unbecoming to... I'll become even more undignified than this. That's another, I mean, I didn't make it into one of the key key verses, but it was, a, that's a big verse for me growing up in terms of. Yep. Well, well, and one of the things that praise and worship reintroduces is passionate, physical self-expression mm -hmm. that's not prompted mm -hmm. that, you know, that you can engage in on and, it really did release something that was kind of latent in Pentecostal piety mm -hmm. that perhaps was getting domesticated a little bit by mid-century. It's good um, that you say that, that it's it released something, because that's also, and we're going to get the second stream here, um, but there's a, I think that you're, I think that we'll find that there's a, a commonality between both of these streams, and that you, you say this very explicitly in the book. I think both practitioners of early praise and worship and practitioners of early contemporary worship have a sense that it's part of a reclamation process, right? There's yes. a, there's a restoring that's happening here and that this is merely, and that's actually, I'll keep going back to this book that I just read. Like it's, it's still understood that way. It's still understood as though the narrative is progressing. We are getting closer and closer to what was actually intentional in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And we're getting there by actually, in some respects, not by progressing, but by going back, going back to the basics. And we're getting something that 
was our kind of birthright as a church, but has been stripped away from us by maybe by by having more money and having more education. I'm not sure we'll leave that to other people to think about, but so it, it, there is, you, you can affirm this is true, right? Like people are talking yeah. very explicitly about the fact that this is in some respects, we're gaining something back from the world, the devil, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The praise and worship people are quite clear that this is a restoration mm-hmm. of biblical worship generally, mm-hmm. or sometimes Davidic worship. They really like David as the prototypical worshiper mm-hmm. or the restoration of apostolic worship. Right. Yeah. Um, the other stream, the contemporary worship river, they're not necessarily claiming re- the restoration of apostolic worship as much as an apostolic perspective, mm-hmm. uh, evangelistic perspective of the apostles and the willingness to be flexible and adaptable in order to reach a wide range of people. Um, right. I don't know if you want to get into that story quite yeah, yet. Yeah, but... let's do that. So the so the forties, you know, the forties to the sixties, the praise and worship is is when it's kind of like it's really in its early days and it develops quite a bit, but around, you actually start this, my sense is you start the story of contemporary worship kind of earlier, even though you you give a couple of different examples of people who are like uh, uh, the, the booths from the Salvation Army, yeah. Salvation um, Army. even uh, Charles Finney and his kind of revivalist meetings, and even further back to like the Meth- you know, the Methodists. Probably Methodist, yeah. So a, a kind of a pragmatism in some respects that you kind of like highlight there, which is our evangelical birthright. Uh, yep. you know, we're for what works, uh, whatever works, whatever works. Um, but then you kind of start at a little bit more earnest. Uh, so I say, you'd say those are kind of the roots of it. And maybe we could talk more about those roots, yep. but you start the story a little more earnestly, I think in around the 1960s. Um, when youth well, for Christ, 40s, 40s, oh, 40s. Okay, is that when Youth for Christ starts to That's kind of youth make its way? Oh, okay, right at the end of World War II. All right, beautiful. So they also have a guiding principle, and it's a Bible verse. And what yep. what's that? What's that one Bible verse? I've now memorized it. Thank you for helping me memorize scripture. Oh, it's you're you're very welcome. It's yeah. the it's the First Corinthians verse that says, "I'll become all things to all people that I might be able to win some." Right. Um, and it's this principle that. What's part of the apostolic mind frame is a self-sacrificing willingness for adaptation, flexibility, and creativity in order to bridge the gap so that the gospel can be attractive and understandable to a wide range of people. And what's the gap? So, I mean, the, the there is no solution if there's no problem. And so they obviously seem to have the sense that there's a pretty uh, yeah, early there, practitioners a, a big problem. But. Yeah, there's a presumption that the church or churches are normally conservative in how they worship. And this, there's there's an element of truth. Once a way of worship gets established, um, the current members tend to perpetuate it. Right. And there, there are some important ritual reasons for that, but sure. um, you do tend to perpetuate it. And these contemporary worship folks, or the First Corinthians 9 folks, um, they're constantly pointing out, hey, look, the church is staying stable, but culture is continually changing mm-hmm. in multiple dimensions, language, music, dress, behavior, perspective, um, mind frame. And unless we're attentive to continual retranslation 
And that's meant both literally in terms of translating the language of worship as well as metaphorically in terms of the musical styles, the dimensions of, you know, corporate and individual behavior. Um, for instance, like, is it illegitimate to drink, sip coffee while you're in a worship service? Well, that's a very appropriate conversation. That's a, for those of you who are listening in the future, this is a big chat right now. John Piper made a comment and now everybody's all up in arms about what I was, every time I sip coffee in church now, I do wonder to myself, is this a problem? But anyway, carry on as you were. Yeah. Well, it was never a problem until the, um, about the 1970s or 80s. And it wasn't a problem until then because no one dared to do it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but it's part of the growing informality. I mean, generally Western culture, and I mean, probably beyond Western culture, what I know, like like highly developed um, Asian cultures like Korea and stuff. I mean, there's just growing informality there, which is seeping into the church. Um, I mean, that's part of the gap. I mean, we, now I, when I was a kid growing up in the sixties and seventies, I, we would have never have dreamt about even stepping out the door of our house to drive to church on Sunday morning without having our ties on, right? regardless of the age. I mean, I was wearing ties to church as a five-year-old. <laughs> Dapper. They were clip-on ties. I hated them. Right. You know, who wears ties to church now? Not even pastors. Not even pastors. No. 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 I, you know, and even, I mean, one one of the most intriguing parts of the research for me individually was discovering kind of the parallel sort of sensibilities and the flood of new Bible translations in English hmm. starting mid-centuries, but uh, mid-20th century, but especially in the 60s and 70s. Hmm. Um, my favorite example of this is that the original Revised Standard Version, which started coming out in the late 40s and 50s, updated the English for everything in the Bible except for the liturgical text. Oh, fascinating. That's good. Um, so the Psalms so, would retain the these and thous? Is that what yeah, and, oh. and even the prayer language in the Gospels hmm. would retain all of that. And the and the weirdest example is in the book of Revelation, the uh, condemnation of the harlot of um, Babylon. Mm-hmm. That's still in archaic English. Hmm. Even though most of the rest of the book of Revelation is in updated English, except for the worship songs. Right. And so you can you can see that sort of reticence about, well, we can update language about every place else, but our worship has to retain the older King James language. Um, but eventually by the 60s and 70s, the people are pushing for one, a thorough reevaluation of all the language in the Bible. And then between mid-60s and mid-80s, just a complete overhaul of the type of English used in uh, English-speaking congregations. Right. Know. So that's the literal updating of the language. That's then... the literal updating of the language. And, you know, what was fun is to take a look at the literature from the contemporary worship proponents of the 60s and 70s. Most of the time we think contemporary worship, we're thinking, oh, that's a change in music. 
For them, oftentimes, the first change was the change in the language. You have to update your English before you update anything else. That's fair. That's fair. Um, but then they did eventually update almost everything else. Oh, everything else. <laughs> um, yeah, everything so the, else is the way that The way that the Congress, I mean, if you know, obviously we're fast forwarding a little bit, but you, uh, not long, and then nothing is, <laughs> I'll say nothing is sacred. Um, that's a, that's cheeky, but um, also kind of true. So like God is sacred in, in, the, in the views of the contemporary uh, worship proponents. The, the God, is, God is sacred, sacred um, but everything else is details and window dressing in some respects. Um, so like the, the the music is obviously a, a huge thing, but the architecture, architecture. Uh, the service orders in terms of how things go, uh, you know. Timing even, for the services. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. To, one of the things that you, you point out is like multiple, multiple services and how how frequent that becomes like a kind of a growth strategy, but yep. even backing it up further again, the problem. So the, there's so many different um, potential candidates for whatever this gap is that needs to be overcome. And that later on, we start to see that some of the gaps are internal. So we start to see there are people who were in the church the whole time and never left who were, they themselves were craving some kind of an update to how things were done and kind of language. But Originally, it seems like most of the the gas on the fire was about reaching people who were not currently yep. uh, in the church. And the gap ends up coinciding, or at least this discovery of this ecclesial gap ends up being discovered right around the same time that we come to have a lot of rampant use of the word generation. Right. Yeah. So now all of a sudden, so my kids, my kids are obsessed. Like what generation am I? Am I generation alpha or my generation Z or Z to anybody who's listening to the U S and I'm like, you know, these are arbitrary distinctions. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm trying to tell them like, like it doesn't really, you're, you are who you are. And uh, yes, you'll have things in common with your cohort. But if you go back to the thirties and forties, nobody is thinking in uh, this it, context. It's a social, it's a construct of sociologists arising early in the 20th century. Yeah. sociologists and psychologists. But, yeah. you know, in the 19th century, no one used the term generation like that. or very like that, yeah. Yeah. But bit by bit, generation comes to designate a cohort of people born and raised in a certain time period that we expect to share certain perspectives, have certain propensities. Businesses like this because it allows them to target their advertising. Sure. Um, this is a lot of this is tied to the rise of a teenage leisure class mm -hmm. and the economic boom post World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, so this whole rise of a consciousness of a teenage culture, music directed just to teenagers, yeah. programs directed just to teenagers. Yeah. Uh, so is that first? Uh, so is it not the discovery of the teenager, but the the targeting of the teenager in general is it a is it a marketing thing before it's a missional thing like does does the business world create that culture before the church gets hip to it or is this kind of happening at the same I time I think it's happening pretty parallel okay you know and business will pursue it more aggressively because there's profit to be made right um Churches increasingly will pursue it as they, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, 
especially in mainline congregations and denominations, as they begin to realize, you know, we're not necessarily growing anymore. Right. You know, and you look around, it's like everybody in our congregation is over the age of 60. Right. We're all the teenagers. So, yeah, what do we do to attract younger adults, younger families, teenagers? Mm-hmm. So they they update the language. They update the literal language. They update the metaphorical language. And then music obviously plays a, a huge role in it. But they th- then there's different prote- practitioners who are trying to exercise this uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 9.22 spirit in a couple of different ways. So some people are just trying to update what their church is doing in a way that uh, is able to speak the language of the youth culture so that they can kind of come on in. So you have all different kinds of things. You have like youth musicals that are, that are making an, uh, an appearance yep. or whatever. So but, uh, see salty and um, Colby, the singing computer for those kinds of things. Although those yep. are more kids musicals and youth musicals, but well, again, it's the, it's the percep- perception that, you know, adult worship doesn't match and fit kids and their right. capacity. So we will create something that does. Right. But that's at least keeping them within the confines of your your church. But then you also have this proliferation of ministries that happen that are kind of like parachurch ministries mm-hmm. or um, I don't know what you'd call them, but like demographic specific church ministries. Um, so youth, things like Youth for Christ and Young Life and Interversity, whatever, who seem to be, and I don't know enough about them, but I mean, they still exist to this day. It mm-hmm. seems like their mission is to kind of reach people uh, who are in this kind of demographic specific season of life. And then I think mostly try to enfold them into some kind of church uh, community. But then there are also a lot of like churches that are kind of like, uh, it seems like they, it seems like they don't always get people involved or kind of integrated in a church. They end up kind of creating churches that are just enclaves of that one particular type of demographic. Is that happening at the same time? Um, Yeah. You get all the variations on that theme. Yeah. So like the missiologists, so, and this is where you start to talk about the church growth movement yeah. in this. And so what's so interesting to me is, again, when I heard the terms church growth movement growing up, I just thought it meant make bigger, better churches. So like uh, do whatever you can to be an attractive church was kind of like the the impression that I had. And maybe that is sort of like pop culture applications of these kind of points, but you kind of opened my eyes to see that it was actually more of a missiological um, strategy before, and it was very. Um, I'm trying. I'm kind of blanking on the on the word, but essentially looking for like indigenous practices. Like this is the kind of stuff that was practiced in some respects, quote unquote, on the mission field and other places, yep. where they would look to see what the actual culture and language and practice was on the ground in one of these places, and then would try to lower any kind of bars to entry uh, to the gospel and to the church to make it, you know, to speak the language of the culture, like literally speaking, you know, and then, and then also culturally speaking. And then these very principles came to North America and were applied to the youth and the unchurched as though they were themselves a foreign culture. Mission field. A mission field. Yeah, no, you're, you're summarizing it quite well, Mark. It's a, it's originally a missiological theory, so a theory of how to do missions that arises in India, and mm-hmm. it's um, sociologically based. Mm-hmm. And one of the standard principles is that people, oh, and the originator of it, Donald McGavran, 
he's looking at missions that are effective in producing growing numbers of Christian disciples and missions that are not. And one of the key differences he decides is that the growing missions don't require the new converts to adopt Western culture. Right. Right. That makes total sense. Yeah. And the other important principle was is the homogeneous unit principle. Oh, yeah. And that people will join a Christian fellowship that they already have a deep connection to. Oh, that's the one that hurts the most. That's you know, when, there are big theological problems. I mean, sure. it might be an accurate behavior of how people act, mm-hmm. but presuming that there is an otherworldly kingdom of God aspect to the gospel, mm-hmm. perhaps sometimes we need to call into question right. or whether help, or not people's natural reshape. activity yeah. Yeah. is the best expression of the reign of God. But anyway, yeah. um, that's a prescriptive move that we don't make in the book. The book's really intended just to be um, a fair description of what what took place. Sure. But um, you can just see how this ties in with generational thinking. Of course, yeah. You know, um, because everything is to subdivide humans into definable groups, figure out how they talk, what interests them, how they make music. Mm-hmm how they relate, how they operate in space, literally how their bodies operate in spaces, what kind of spaces feel comfortable to them. Mm -hmm. And then to think through over and over and over again, how to adapt Christian worship um, so that um, the church, the gospel and Christian worship can be accessible to the people that were not successful in reaching in prior ways. So informality and rock and roll music, these are two of the primary languages of the culture that early practitioners of contemporary worship uh, in North America are. They, sure. they, this is our yeah. target demographic. Yeah. That's right. And I mean, just, uh, yeah, just take a look what's going on. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's been, a, it's been a minute since the 1960s, um, but you can see that obviously they've been successful uh, in terms of if that was, if that was their goal, that, that's been. Oh, spread. there's a, there's a wonderful book. People, can people see me if I turn around or. This is just <laughs> I, I think it's mostly going to be audio. Every once in a while I make a video clip, but okay, I won't do this. So unless you want. Yeah. Let me see if I can find my book real quick. This is a really. You still got a great head of hair, Lester. I mean, good for you. Oh, you know, you're really kind. Um, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, there it is. Hold on. Listeners, he's going for the bookshelf. He's got he's got books that are out of you. My gosh, this guy's got books. This is one of the, I think, the most instructive books. And it's a book that's not really well known. It's by John McWhorter called Doing Our Own Thing, The Degradation of Language in Music. And why we should like care. (laughs) This guy's a linguist at Columbia University. And it's a description of how the 1960s is really a threshold moment to shift so many aspects of culture over into informal modes. Hmm. 
so much so that he says older forms of talking, so older forms of speech making, for instance, would now be considered as untrue and inauthentic to our post-1960s ears. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well-crafted speech we're suspicious of. Of course. Whereas off-the-cuff, vernacular, halting, even semi-disconnected sort of speech, but with a lot of passion, we go, oh, that person's telling the truth. Yeah. And he says that this all happens in the 1960s. And, you know, so not surprisingly, um, you know, that starts coming into how the churches worship. Um, he says the whole nature of English poetry changes in this same time period. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the reason why for some people, older strophic hymns, which are based on older forms of poetry. Right. Are just off-putting. They they're they're just a foreign world, right? Yeah, there it's true. Like we think of kind of Victorian hymns, they're so, you know, so governed by meter, uh, to the point that you have to sometimes like force words to f kind of fit in them. Like you drop you drop syllables, uh, yeah, to make them fit into the meter. Like that, like that's how rigid they are. Uh, but yeah, that that does smack in some respects of. In authenticity. I mean, if we went down the authenticity road, we would never get out there. So th thank you for sharing that book. Okay. That's fascinating. I, yeah, I, That's great. I, sorry I brought up the A no. word. Um, <laughs> but I will drop it now. But, um, oh, gosh. But you're, I mean, you're, it is, it is absolutely enormous and we're living with the repercussions of it. Um, yeah. so, so the, the two, the two, the two rivers are now, the, this is interesting is that by the, I don't know when you'd say if it's by the 70s or 80s, they're kind of developing in parallel. So if you're adopting this idea that, hey, there is a gap between the church and the culture around us, and what we need to do is we need to update our language and we need to become more relevant or we need to be more more current or whatever. And so you're changing your style of worship, you're 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 dressing down, you're making sure that you have some coffee available, uh, you're you're training up band-based worship. Mm -hmm. But and you're moving the worship service, oh, you're starting a new service in the church fellowship hall. There you so go. it doesn't Boom. feel as stuffy. It's not stodgy in there. We love the fellowship yeah. hall. Yeah. So so that's all happening. But you're not necessarily, or perhaps even probably, engaging in kind of prolonged, flowy mm. times of worship. You still have a, a relatively non-charismatic kind of expression of worship that's happening at that point in time. Yeah. And then you over might here. Be, you yeah. might be using songs and music from the other river, but you're doing it for a different reason. Okay, so it was originally created, right? So I didn't know when the when the actual songs themselves started to go over. Because parallel over here is that you have music, uh, this this kind of style of worship, this approach to worship, very much based on the idea that God is going to come and meet with us when we give Him the sacrifice of praise. So whether we feel like it or not, we're not necessarily waiting to be moved. We're going to show up, and it happens to be the church service starts now. We're going to praise Him. We're going to give Him the honor that it's due, and that. And and that has that started off with not contemporary instrumentation, right? No. It was just like you know piano or whatever organ, whatever you happen to have available at that point in time, voices only in some contexts. Um, yep. And then, but this is this is moving through. So these people are still wearing suits, right? Like they're they're oh, still yeah, showing up. So. They look good, uh, and they're still meeting in their their sanctuaries. But then at some point in time, you mentioned floodplains, so kind of the the space between these two rivers that starts to get 
waters that are mixing between the salty and the and the fresh, the salty yep. and the sweet. Um, and then, but at one point, uh, they start to converge to the point that you have essentially one overwhelming kind of river. So what's the, I mean, I, we're already, I could keep you here all day, but we're, we're getting nearing the end of our time. So I want to kind of at least get us to the point where you can sure, see sure. when these things start to kind of converge. Um, it's, there's not a single point where it's like, okay, they're separate. And then past this climactic event, they're together. Right. There's no 9-11 for this. So these yeah. these rivers are growing closer together and the banks are lowering. And so you get some flooding from time to time. You start getting a marsh between the two, we might say. <laughs> but by the late 1990s, there is pretty much of a confluence. And a lot of that is due to the infrastructure that has been built up that allows much cross-sharing. And so CCLI is in place mm -hmm. and is up and running and doing well. Mm -hmm. um, I've taken a look at some of the denominational breakdowns for some of the early reporting periods. And like their very early reporting periods, a lot of Southern Baptists and a lot of Pentecostals. Okay. So but, right, right away we see both. Yeah, a half dozen years later, up right underneath the Southern Baptists, displacing the Pentecostal representation and the denominational breakdown are these mainline congregations. Okay. You know, so they've all bought in. They're the music and the people and um the music industry is getting more commercialized in the 1990s right and the businesses don't care who's buying the products yeah you mentioned that as a really interesting point so uh you know since the 1960s on music so not christian music just like the creation the prolifer proliferation and consumption of music itself has become industrialized in a way that yeah. it, beforehand you know you you couldn't buy vinyl oh it's just it's amazing it, yeah. it, some of these early songs just circulated it one of the most amazing things is that there's a song on an early ccli top 25 list what mm -hmm. a mighty god we serve what a mighty god we, we serve. serve so think oh, about a song that's popular enough to appear on a top 25 ccli list we have absolutely no idea who wrote that song oh really fascinating how did who's getting paid for it if it made on top 25 no one is as far as i know <laughs> i gotta i'm gonna Ima try to imagine today's environment a top 25 ccli song <laughs> where everybody goes we have no idea where this song comes from but we really like it yeah i think it's me i think it was me probably um <laughs> yeah so like just in general things are changing and then the kind of technology and, and industry yep. kind of go, working hand in hand i mean i, I had a i've even before reading this, I had this kind of inclination that projection was some some kind of a, a technical uh, a magic carpet that that made that made things possible that would have never been possible before. And so, like the yeah. idea of being able to move from holding, but I uh, hold a hymnal in your hand and having to wait, you know, ten years for that hymnal to be updated, to being able to instantly, or at least within the week, have words that were just like printed in front of you. So from a contemporary perspective of being like, let's keep it hip, let's keep it fresh. But I never considered, so that's a, that's a, a first Corinthians nine twenty two yep. uh, application point. You know, I'm going to be all things to all people right now. I'm going to give you the language, but I'd never considered before that it would, that it worked well with the Psalm 22, three 
theolog- theologizing as well, which is that you know you're not looking down. You're able to look up. You're not having to hold a book with your hands. Your hands are able to be free. You're able to engage more actively and immediately in praise and in worship. Uh, the, 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 just that one piece of the, the puzzle was huge for me. Yeah, and, the, and when you're doing that, if you're relying upon projection, the songs can flow together much better. Right, which is good for praise and worship stuff. Uh, but also becomes good for contemporary worship stuff because the music that we listen to is more able to even in even in technology. You point out, uh, it's funny. I grew up knowing that there was an album called Revival at Brownsville, um, but I'd never actually ended up listen, listening to it. Um, I keep referencing this book. This book that I read, this guy was went yeah. to Brownsville when he was a worship leader, and he met Lyndall Cooley and all that kind of good stuff. So it's like this one book is like such a great example of all the things that we that you guys point out in praise and worship. But the idea that that one album was laid out in some respects as a praise and worship experience because it was laid out with the kinds of transitions and with the the kind of service set yep. order that you would yep. expect. And so people, even if you're not in the praise and worship world and able to experience this on a Sunday, your music flowing together and having kind of like connectivity and building upon it, the, the idea of a concept album is, you know, Pink Floyd's The Wall or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like you, it's not foreign to us to have this idea that music works not merely in isolation. Actually, that's kind of more of a 21st century problem uh, in terms of the idea of, of you know, Spotify and, and single releases making making our songs more atomized. During the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the idea of an album was king. So having songs that worked together and that worked yep. off of each other, that was actually yep. the language of the people, as it were. So, Yep. And that's, that's standard praise and worship practice of the 70s and 80s, especially. The first how-to material really emphasizes that sort of capacity in the church musician. Crazy. Um, I, my goodness, I've had you on here for an hour and I have to let you go. But I just, I, and we, we've, we've barely, barely scratched the surface. If, if there's one thing that since, I mean, is there, is there one thing that since the publication of this book that you have encountered uh, like, so like kind of new updated material or like a, a, a counter thesis, someone said, but Lester, have you thought about this? Um, is there any, like how in any way has your thoughts changed in any respects since you've, since you've published this book? I'm not sure my thoughts have changed. I can tell you where my main frustration is though. Sure. And Sui Hong and I already had some idea when we published this. Our, our initial aspirations were to try to publish a global history. And not surprisingly so, because so, Sui Hong is originally from Singapore. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I have an interest in global Christianity. But we soon realized that just to tell the North American story would be enough for a single book. Mm-hmm. And so they are connected histories, but somebody really needs to go back and do the parallel work for New Zealand, Australia. Somebody really needs to go in and do the parallel work for Hong Kong, Singapore. Mm-hmm. Somebody needs to go in and do the parallel work for West Africa and East Africa. Mm-hmm. Somebody needs to go in and do the parallel work for Central and South America. Um, I mean, we got hints of those stories mm-hmm. and Korea. Somebody needs to do the work for Korea too. Um, because they have connected histories, but our book does not exhaust 
all the history that needs to be uncovered and told about this phenomenon. It really is, whether you call it contemporary praise and worship, contemporary worship, praise and worship, um, alabanza y adoración in Spanish, yebiwa chanyong in Korean. I won't even try the Mandarin Korean. Sui Hong has taught me that, but I won't, <laughs> I won't try that. I won't get the tones right. It's a global phenomenon. Yeah, um, is that your sense? Is that the, the sense is that there will like, your, your, would your thesis be, and then it'd be like you know you'd have to prove it. Yeah, is that there are pretty much parallel histories in all of these locations? I think they're derived histories. I think this latter rain route. Ah, uh, okay. You know the the book operates by the idea that there are two parallel rivers. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm teaching on this, I've changed it a little bit. If okay. your listeners can envision the Mississippi River Valley river system in the United States. Mm -hmm. So the Mississippi River is the main branch, but then you have these tributaries, large tributaries, the Ohio, the Missouri, the Arkansas, the Red River feeding into it. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's really the case. The, and particularly on a global perspective, this latter rain yeah. roots is going to be the backdrop. I know that's true, especially for New Zealand and um, Australia. So they must have been, they were quite prolific in terms of sending missionaries out into various quarters of the world then, yes? Starting in the late 40s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, my 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 favorite and funniest example is this mission Canadian missionary who's up working with the Inuit in the Canadian Arctic right. by 1956. You know, the idea of these Inuit doing praise and worship in 1956. It's mind-blowing. You know, if the Inuit are doing it, you know, they're doing it in Sydney. Yeah, that's good. I mean, like, that's the one, uh, you know, part of the work that I need to do in the next little bit is kind of uncover, is, is work on the the virality of worship songs. Like, how how do they go from kind of one place to another? And 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 this, this book has helped me think through a lot of like, well, how, how does this stuff spread and it kind of happens a lot of it happens by conferences so that's like people who happen oh. to be there at the right place at the right time but then some people are and i haven't seen this very much but that this is where i guess maybe the latter rain movement would have a lot of explanatory power is in that case it's not people going to a church or going to an expert or whatever uh, to kind of imbibe whatever's going on it's people going out but literally kind of trying to proselytize mm -hmm. in some respects about because they've had a transformative experience, right? Literally, like this is this has been important for me and therefore I want it to be important yeah, that, for you. Particularly in the early decades, the novelty of this was such that people, you know, sometimes invited somebody to come to them to teach them how to do this. I mean, what was one of the funniest stories? Oh, Charles Green, who was an Pentecostal from New Orleans, early adopter, uh, praise, Pentecostal praise and worship, late 1960s. Um, 1960s or 1950s? 1950s. Um, Reverend Green um, recently passed away. But anyway, he told me this wonderful story. He was had been invited to Germany, and he was trying to teach the people how to raise their hands to worship God, and he couldn't get any of them to do it. <laughs> Now, this is 1950s, 1960s Germany. Sure. And he finally asked them, why won't you raise your hands? And he said, it's too close to the Nazi salute. Oh, mercy. Right. 
That's contextual. And he, had to, he worked hard to show them the biblical basis from the Psalms about raising hands. Wow. And when they saw, oh, okay, we can do this for biblical reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, but that gesture now is so universal. It's a standard. Let me point it back to something you mentioned early in the discussion here, Mark. That image of a congregation of worshipers with streaming lights, rock band, and their hands in the air is so such a universal icon now for either Pentecostal or evangelical or non-denominational worship. Yeah. The idea that, you know, there was a period where these people wouldn't do it, um, and it struck them as entirely novel. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean— when when people think about sometimes people will make arguments against early Christianity or certain uh, ways that beliefs or practices spread to say that like things can't propagate that fast like like practices can't really move oh, that no. fast and I'm like I don't know no 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 no, no. it happens I, fast <laughs> some of the interviews that we've done were some of the early songwriters so like 70s and 80s. And if I'm remembering correctly, and I may be wrong on this, Eddie Espinoza changed my heart, oh God, Eddie mm -hmm. Espinoza. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he told me once he was he was um, pleasantly surprised to hear um, non-English translations of his own songs coming back to him that he never realized that anybody else knew. <laughs> right. I mean that. Proliferate spread of songs would be so tightly controlled now in the commercial, of course, yeah. Aspect is the yeah. idea that you know you could write a a chorus, and somebody here would pick it up and they'd take it and they would take it and then they would take it overseas and it get translated, and then it would come back to him. Right. Crazy. Yeah, that's just the way it spread. That there were different variations of the same song that was spread. Right. That sounds like Christian practice, uh, you know, to have it be appropriated in mildly different ways and then kind of comes back to you in a way that's like, oh, that, that's familiar, but different. Um, and whereas whereas now we do have a little bit more, as you mentioned, control in terms of the actual artifacts themselves. But, you know, the fellow, one of the fellows you're working with now, Adam Perez, tells a funny story in his dissertation of one of the early conferences to teach and spread praise and worship. And um uh, oh, I forget which song it was. A, late, a song written in the late 70s, and the composer was there. <laughs> and there, um, the musicians are checking notes because they're going to lead the song, and they all know different versions of the song. <laughs> you know, and uh, if I'm remembering the story, Craig, the composer's trying to say, I wrote it. <laughs> I can tell you what the original version is. <laughs> That's not important. It's my received version. That's the most important <laughs> one. Yes. This book has been so incredibly helpful for me. I mean, I'm going to get more mileage out of it than than probably anything else on my shelf for the next little while. So I I, I know I have a faint idea how much work went into to making it happen. And so on behalf of myself and many other people who have also, uh, you know, gleaned from it, I want to say a deep and hearty uh, thank you very much. And I hope that I get a chance at some point in the future to uh, treat you to a, an actual in-person coffee and we can chat a little bit more about the myriad other questions that I have still looming from it. Uh, I look forward to that time and thanks for this opportunity, Mark.
wondering why.